JV Knowledge Podcast Network. On episode 86 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, we're talking about process automation and the state of InsureTech with Emma Roloff from Navient. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JV Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. All right, all right, all right. It is uh, another Friday here uh, that we are recording the InsureTech Geek Podcast. I am flying solo. Uh, this week uh, in the pilot seat, James Benham unable to be with us. So uh, I guess I get to take the seaplane and see wherever we go. James is a, a pilot, Emma, um, bringing in Emma Roloff from Navient. So uh, oftentimes I have never flown a plane. I have no, I've talked to pilots before, but um, yeah, not something that I'm interested in doing. I'm, I'm, I'm risk adverse, like a good insurance professional. So how about you, Emma? You ever wanted to fly a plane, or have you ever done that? You have a pilot's license. I have. I have not. Um, my my husband's uncle has a pilot's license, so the family is very familiar with the idea. But I have yet to be brave enough myself to get into like the little the little plane. Um, so I am uh, kind of in that same camp of insurance friends that are afraid to take too many risks. I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's probably uh, that. That's a good uh, litmus test. If you are uh, like a startup founder or an insurance professional, are you a pilot, a licensed pilot, or not? That'd be a good one. Although I've met some folks that are big motorcycle enthusiasts and others that that are more staid, you know, like an HR insurance executive type. So uh, anyway, I know that 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 uh, looks can uh, be deceiving, right? Uh, so before we get started with our interview with Emma, don't forget that you can subscribe. Uh, out in listener land to the InsureTech Geek podcast by texting Geek Out. That's G E E K O U T to six six eight six six. Make sure you never miss an episode. And so uh, we're back with Emma Roloff from Navient. So we'll definitely uh, dive into uh, Navient and uh, who they are, what they do. We're also going to talk a little bit about the state of InsureTech because. Emma and I uh, just got back from the Global Insurance Symposium in Des Moines, Iowa, which is a, a wonderful event. And it was wonderful to see it back uh, at full strength in person. My first time actually going there. So we got a lot of good insights from uh, so many of the different panelists and speakers there. But before we dive into Navient and GIS, we want to learn about Emma, uh, a little bit about you and your background. So um, you are a Big Ten alum. Uh, uh, like I am, you are uh, currently in Wisconsin. You're an alum of uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, so before you went to Wisconsin, um, and you have a, a Bachelor of Science in Secondary Education and Teaching, so it's a little different than insurance, and we'll definitely talk about that transformation, but what did you uh, want to do uh, as a little girl? What did you want to be when you grew up? Um, well, I mean, I think this answer isn't going to be a surprise based off of what I went to school for, but I was always the teacher or the mom when we were playing as kids because I liked to tell people what to do. And <laughs> and I really now now looking back again, it's that that like natural I like to say natural born uh, leader, right? Um, and so I was always the one that was making up the games of what we were pretend learning or um, you know 
telling people where to go and what to do. Um, and as I grew up, how I wanted to educate or what age I wanted to be a teacher for kind of went along with me on my education path. So at first I wanted to be just like my elementary school teachers. And then I got to middle school and was like, whoa, I don't want to teach people how to read. That's way too much pressure. And then kind of shifted and then through high school, honed in what I thought I wanted to do and how I wanted to teach. And now I teach people about transformation and technology and change within our industry. So I'm, I still kind of feel like I've got a little bit of that as a part of a part of what I do every day. Absolutely. No, I just will say you're, you're still an educator. It's just a different type of, of education for sure. Um, and, and you put a lot of great content out there and we'll definitely talk about that. So, um, so just kind of curious, like, um, obviously, you know, went to school, great school, um, uh, focused on being a teacher and you were a teaching assistant, um, and a training specialist to start with. Uh, before you made the change and went to Navient. So maybe kind of tell us about kind of early career, what that was like, and then what uh, kind of caused you to then make this change over into kind of the um, technology sales side. Yeah, so um, I was really fortunate being in UW's program to have um, a, a great exposure to all different kinds of education. And so I have the, the secondary ed, which for people that aren't in the education world, that means uh, certification for teaching sixth through 12th grade. So um, through the program, I got time with middle school and high schoolers. And then based off of kind of my own dictation, I asked to to see the, the whole spectrum of education. So I taught in a traditional school. I taught in a um, charter school for kind of at-risk students, as well as a private school that was, so kind of getting my full exposure to all different kinds of teaching. And I, I really loved working with kids, and I really loved um the different opportunities that I had to try and teach. But I also kind of came face to face, admittedly, with the idea of, oh man, I have some loans in front of me and what is that input and output going to look like when I graduate? And maybe what are some alternatives where I could still have the parts of this career that were really fascinating to me, but maybe in a, a slightly more su sustainable um, income status. And so all through high school and college, I had worked for um, for any of us Midwestern folks, the, the name Culver's will sound familiar, um, but it's a, a fast food chain that started just outside of Madison. And so I had worked at a restaurant managing all through high school and college. And then right before, or I guess my last two summers of co college, I was approached by the um, franchising office for an internship in their training department. And that I think is really where when I got to graduation, I had seen how I could use my skills in a private business. And I'd also had lots of exposure of how I could use them in kind of the public domain teaching. And I found that as much as I liked working with kids, teaching adults was also very fulfilling to me. And so I worked there for a couple of years and got some really cool experience. I mean, going back, I was 22 years old and teaching people how to go open their business. So um, my job was to teach restaurant franchisees coming in all of the procedures and processes from 
scooping ice cream or making a hamburger to scheduling their restaurant, paying attention to human resources, like rules and regulations that they needed to be aware of for owning their business. And I had a classroom aspect to that position as well, because the franchise also does some really great management training for continuing education for managers that are a part of those restaurants. So I still had my very kind of traditional classroom teaching, but it was management skills and soft skills and that kind of stuff. Um, and so I did that for a couple of years. And um, when I when I looked up and started kind of thinking about what I wanted to do next, um, I realized I'd been with the same company when you look across high school and college and all the rest of it for almost 10 years. And um, based off of the relationship between the restaurant that I worked in and the franchise office, everyone had known me since I was 15 and my nose was too big for my face and I ran into stuff and, you know, like all of those things. And I just was ready for maybe a bit more of an adult experience. And um, I had been encouraged by a number of different people to look at going into sales because I like people and I like teaching and I like explaining. Um, and I would like to pretend I had this grand plan that was going to bring me right into the world of transformation. And really, I ended up landing where I'm at because of our company culture and um, heard really great things about the business and um, the people that were working here and didn't fully even understand kind of from a, a software standpoint what I was signing up for at that time. Um, and I came in and I sat down and our COO at the time was interviewing me and she said, you know, I, you don't meet a lot of the qualifications for our job description, but the second that I saw you were a teacher, I knew that you might, you'd be a good fit because when I worked for IBM all those years ago before IT was a thing, they would go and recruit teachers on college campuses because they needed people to teach about technology and get people to understand the concepts. So we think you'd be a good fit for the company. We want you to come and learn the technology and learn about what it means to kind of manage these relationships from a partnership standpoint and um, we'll, we'll take care of that part. You bring your personality and that like teaching expertise to the table. So. Yeah, that's awesome. I did not know that about IBM. That's really fascinating, but that, it makes a lot of sense. And um, particularly anytime you're in some type of, or your, your products or services are technical in nature uh, and specialized. Um, I, and I know firsthand as somebody that's been on the insurance carrier side for 20 years, uh, with budget authority in many cases, making purchasing decisions, having to evaluate between different options. Like there's not a ton of great information and resources out there. And so you you come to rely on um you know the the education process, thought leadership and others that that companies uh provide. So that it it it's great that um you know they saw that uh that background and, and that you had that skill set, right? And that that would really be valuable for Navient. So for our, our audience, maybe you can um, just share a little bit about Navient. Uh, you know, what does the company do? How does it tie to uh, the insurance space? And um, yeah, just give everyone kind of a broad overview of Navient. Yeah, thank you. So we at our heart are a process consulting company. Um, and so what I mean by that is we are in the software space and we implement software technologies, but we're typically partnering with 
software companies to resell their solutions. And so what makes us unique is we have the ability to um, have multiple different solution suites that we bring forward based off of our customers' specific needs. And we can focus on looking at the process that we're trying to automate. And so, for example, like look from tail to tip at a claims process and really focus in on how are we redesigning that process to be as efficient as possible. And then from our toolkit of these different platforms, what are we going to need to enable that new process and enable the people that are working on your team to accomplish that great customer experience that we're all chasing. And so, um, we have the consulting side, and then, of course, we have folks on our team that are doing the actual technical implementations and a um, nationwide support team that's there to support our customers with technical challenges and or expanding their solution over time. Um, and so from a, a technology sweet spot, um, I, I talk a lot about process automation, which I've already said, as well as content management. And so again, kind of going back to that claims process, there are pieces of content, all different kinds of pieces of content that go into a claim. So, you know, there's the, the initial information, whether it's uh, you know, you're getting it electronically, maybe through a portal, you've got that first notice of loss, or you've got physical documents that are coming in, maybe a police report or pictures of an accident, or, you know, in, at least in the PNC space. So we're looking at all of that content, but you use that content to make decisions. And sometimes those core platforms that we're using don't do a great job of managing the content that's behind those decisions. So we're often teaming up with those platforms and offering that content management side of things, as well as then having process automation tools to, again, look at that full life cycle and see where we maybe have bottlenecks in our process that the current tool set isn't able to address. And where can we fill those gaps to build in automation so that you're streamlining that process further and taking your team and applying them to the hard stuff and the stuff that automation can't manage. So the complex claims that require extra effort or the customer experience and making sure someone going through a loss is really getting what they need while they're moving through that process. And so um, again, we have all different kinds of tools across that whole life cycle. And it really depends on what our customers are looking to accomplish and where they have those gaps as what we pull out of that toolkit. It sounds like a fairly comprehensive kind of suite of, of products and services that you offer. So I'm curious, like maybe you can share just to make it more real for the audience, like um, when are companies coming to you and, and who in these companies are coming to you? So it, are it uh, business leaders? Is it, you know, like a, a call center, an underwriting team, a claims team? Are they process engineers? Um, are they you know, they have a lot of manual touch points and they're looking to start their automation journey, or maybe they've uh, started down the road with some of the, the RPA type software or others, and, and maybe they are realizing that it's it's not a complete solution and they need more. So I'm just kind of, and maybe it's all of the above, uh, but just kind of curious, like <laughs> when are companies reaching out? When are they looking to engage? Like what parts and at what stage? I would say, I'm going to sound like that stereotypical salesperson where I say it's a little bit of all of the above, um, but where, and I'm actually, so we're going to get to the global insurance symposium, but I heard somebody during the insure tech panel 
say a statement and I'm going to, I'm going to take it. And it's kind of like that curated value idea that he was talking about from the standpoint of like working with an agent or a broker. But in this scenario, we're kind of that, that curated value partner for our companies. So someone, oftentimes people will come to us when they are, and this was a bit more common a handful of years ago, but like, oh man, we still have a lot of paper or we've moved away from paper but we get a lot of PDFs that are attached to emails that come in. And so it's electronic paper at this point, you know? And so it's like that very, very beginning stages of like, how do I even set this foundation to be able to go and deliver on all of these expectations that my customers have? And we can certainly get down to this later, but again, maybe you've got a nice flashy website that makes everybody feel like you're this really digital insurer, but then all of a sudden all of your backend processes are still outdated and inefficient. So it could be starting at that, that starting point of we realize we started over here and now we need to address everything that's going on in the backend. I would say most frequently though, we are meeting our customers where they're at on that journey. And so it's it's typically like, okay, we are in the midst of replacing our policy admin solution, and we recognize there's these five gaps, and we need to bring in a solution in tandem to help solve these problems. Or um, going, going back to one of the ideas that you mentioned, we brought in a vendor, and we were building a portal, and we want a self-service option for people to know exactly what's going on with their claim, just the same way as when they order from DoorDash or whatever, you know, fill in the blank of what business we're, we're comparing ourselves to. And all of a sudden we realized that like the, the statuses that we have in our systems are not useful for our customers or the status doesn't update as frequently as we would like it to in our core system. And there's other activities taking place out of it. And how do we report on that? And how do we give visibility to our team and our customers on those things? And so we there, there's different start points of what those conversations look like. And part of why I love that so much is that's the 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 process consulting heart that I was talking about. So regardless of where you are on that process, we're going to come and we're going to meet you where you're at. And we're going to talk about where you are today and where you ultimately want to go and then help make recommendations of how to get you there. And then sometimes it's as simple as like, you know, what I'm hearing you say, I think if you're able to accomplish these changes with this vendor that you're already working with, you guys are going to be able to accomplish your goals. Um, and we're, we're not necessarily going to bring in another tool to enable that because you've got what you need today. Um, but more often than not, we do find that, um, you know, we're able to kind of help solve some of those problems by bringing in one of the tools that we've got. Um, most frequently in the insurance space, it's going to be things like claims processing, um, po new policies or policy changes, those types of things are going to be where we see that there's a lot of content that needs to be involved in those scenarios. And maybe that's where some of those challenges lie. Um, and then, or anytime that you're interacting sometimes with an external database or doing data validation, or I was having a conversation with someone today, you know, every time they've got a claim, they need to go to this external database to see if there's already been a claim that's semi-related um, this is a workers' comp situation, but they need to go and validate against, um, you know, PNC claims to make sure that there's not a duplicate. 
Well, that's a really manual process that their team needs to go about doing. And there isn't a great way within their current solution suite to have something that manages that repetitive process of logging into the external portal, pulling back the report, grabbing the data that's needed and bringing it into the system to drive decisions. So we can do things like bringing in robotics to manage that like repetitive process so that their team can focus on the decisions that are being made with that data instead of actually executing the task at hand. This kind of idea, right, of, of um, automation, thinking your processes, uh, there's so many different aspects to it, right, from a customer service experience or a customer experience piece or customer service as well, right? Um, uh, as well as just uh, expense savings, things like that. Uh, so we've kind of mentioned now a couple of times that we were both at the Global Insurance Symposium. And so there's several things that I want to get to kind of on that event. But uh, one, just to start off with, was um, we got to see um, pitches from uh, the last or the latest cohort from the Global Insurance Accelerator, the GIA, uh, that's based in Des Moines and the team, uh, Nicole Gunderson, Megan Brandt do a fantastic job. Uh, several fantastic startups have gone through that program. And uh, this, this year's uh, cohort was, was no exception to that. Uh, there was one in particular that was interesting um, that was called Safari. It was really talking about talent in the insurance industry and this challenge that the industry is suddenly facing. And we've talked about the talent gap for a long time. We know that we tend to be uh, an older workforce in the insurance industry. We've obviously been hearing with the pandemic and the great resignation, a lot of those folks are leaving. And yes, there's some talent that are, and we saw some student uh, competition actually from uh, three universities uh, that were finalists from uh, Gamma Iota Sigma that uh, did presentations on what they think the future of insurance is gonna look like in 2030s. But you know, those uh, great programs at universities, they certainly aren't, um, providing enough graduates to fill the gap. And so, you know, of course, it's like, where are we going to find these people? And I think that's a legitimate question that people are worried about. But I've always said, hey, those 400,000 jobs or whatever we're going to need, like, they're not all going to be filled by people. Technology is going to fill the gap. And it's going to be through automation and other efforts, AI, et cetera. So just kind of curious, your thoughts, are, are you seeing that? Is that maybe giving people um, a little bit more motivation to explore some of this as they're seeing folks retire, they're taking a lot of tacit knowledge and experience with them and they're recognizing that, yeah, trying to train that you know, uh, IT graduate in COBOL or Fortran, that's not gonna be a long-term strategy. <laughs> so we need to um, come up with a new way of uh, managing our talent. Yes. So I think there is, and I, and I talk about this a fair amount in, um, in terms of just like the greater idea of artificial intelligence or automation in general, I think there's this thought that we will be able to replace people and that can cause fear, but it's not, we, we are replacing people and automating tasks but it's not to get rid of people in the workforce. It's to make it so that the people that are in the workforce have a manageable workload and that your organization is able to grow and scale without having to have the sheer amount of people that we used to, to be able to accomplish our goals. And especially currently in light, whether it's the insurance industry or any other, you know, there's other folks on my team that focus on specific verticals like government and commercial companies 
every single industry, because we're in the midst of the great resignation, is seeing this huge pinch for talent. And, um, you know, there, there are certainly people that are looking for jobs and great talented people that are out there. But especially, I feel like in the insurance industry, we have a tendency to want to bring people in that have years of experience to match maybe what we're seeing age out of the workforce. Um, and that like, and this is again, a, the joke of every job description. I need five and a half years of experience for this entry level position. Um, and I've, I've even seen some stuff of like, we need five years of experience for this technology that was developed two years ago. Um, so, you know, like that, there's a little bit of that that goes on, but in the insurance industry specifically, I feel like that pinch is probably a little bit more felt because of the the average age of the the population of employees, but also because change is happening so quickly in the industry now, and we've seen an acceleration of that, it's also going to be bringing in people that have different skill sets than maybe we needed before. And when you're bringing in people that have technical aptitude versus insurance experience, suddenly you're pulling from a pool that a lot of other companies and a lot of other industries are pulling from as well. And so I think that almost increases the, the, the sense of urgency to figure out how do we do more with less? And that's exactly what, what automation is there for. So you know, my hope when we bring in solutions for our customers is number one, that those poor people that you're talking to that are just overworked and their to-do list is never ending and like the pile of work just continues to, to grow and they can't hire people quick enough to keep up with it. My hope is that we make those people's lives better and we make their working environment more enjoyable. And then once you do that and you set that foundation, then it's how do we scale the company with the talent that we've got and leverage the value that that talent brings to the table to be able to offer a better customer experience to our policyholders. And so I, I feel like maybe I answered the whole question. I'm not sure I'll stop. No, I, no. And, and, you know, we've obviously talked a little bit about the, the aging of the workforce and the population, but in parallel has been this aging of systems, right? And I know a lot of folks over the years that made, you know, really good money at insurance companies because they knew an outdated proprietary system backwards and forwards. And so, you know, they were really valuable. We relied on those people to, to maintain those systems, to make sure that they kept running, uh, to troubleshoot to if they needed to be modified, right? Maybe there's a, a new product or a new data field, et cetera, right? But unfortunately, their, their value was their knowledge and expertise in this outdated system. And so they were kind of tied to the company because if they left the company and went somebody else, well, guess what? They don't know that other proprietary system that's outdated at some other company. And so you've kind of locked in these people that are the experts in that system. Well, those are uh, many of the folks among others, right, that are now retiring from the workforce. And so you, you can't really replace that person. You can't have that, hey, you were here when the system was uh, first implemented in the 1970s and 1980s, right? You've been with it the whole time and you have this encyclopedic knowledge of it. Like, you know, you've probably forgotten more than we even have documented in any type of, you know, training manuals or documentation. And so, um, you know, as those people are, are leaving, I think it just really points to these now outdated systems is even more of a pressure point of like, hey, we had older uh, workforce and older systems with the older workforce, they retire and they're still using the systems, they don't retire, but we've got to get off them or upgrade or, 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 or you know, take that on in some way. 
So I shared this story with you, I think, already. And I, I have two stories that I kind of want to talk to that play exactly into this. And one is that that old mainframe system that just to what you're saying, I had a conversation right when I first got into the industry and was still learning about insurance and learning about software and getting myself up to speed. And I was at a networking event and we were talking about the, all of the perks that come with working for an insurance company. And some of this has changed due to COVID, but like you walk into most like large carriers and they've got these like beautiful like courtyards with a cafeteria attached and then you know there's the the summer hours and all of these different things and so we were talking about that and they were like well that's part of what we do in the industry to make sure that like our employees feel valued and that you know like we have a good culture and um and then the the conversation continued to flow and and somehow we got onto the conversation of how they are starting to recruit and this was a handful of years ago so I hope this has changed but they're starting, they were starting programs in local high schools to teach students how to begin to learn COBOL so that they could support these platforms when these other people retired. And it was, again, like 24-year-old me was sitting there and I'm like, ah, mm, I feel like you're thinking about this paradigm the wrong way. And maybe we should be having a conversation about getting replacement on the roadmap before these people retire versus trying to find children that will eventually support this archaic platform. And so like that mindset was, again, it's forward thinking kind of, but I wouldn't say it's innovative thinking. Um, and then a, a more recent conversation that I had um, going back to kind of the idea behind robotic process automation. There are lots of different tools that you can bring in to do that, that are kind of like configurable solutions or low code solutions and I was talking to an insurance provider about potentially bringing in one of our platforms. And this is no, um, they've developed some really cool things in-house, but they were telling us that they had brought in a solution and it wasn't quite meeting their needs. And rather than going back to the marketplace to look for another solution that they could bring in-house, they reskilled their team to be C-sharp um, development resources. Again, I'm not going to deep that they're using modern technology, but instead of having those resources, one, they made them more expensive resources through that training process. And then they had them build custom solutions that accomplished the same goal of what they could have brought in another platform to do. And th at the surface level, that seemed like a cheaper choice from you know the cost benefit standpoint, because they're not paying these large licensing fees and they, you know, it's, it's the team that they've got, they've reskilled. That's great. But if you're not a technical resource, I don't know how many people realize that like code is kind of like your own personal, like you, you write code your own way, the same way that I might write the same sentence a different way than you do. And while it's a more modern programming language, you bring someone else in to come support something that someone else has written, and it's not the way that they would have written that code, they're going to have to untangle a bowl of spaghetti to be able to support that solution. And so it's this buy versus build mentality that's very interesting to me in the insurance industry that we continue to opt back to this build side of things because we feel like that's what's going to give us our proprietary edge instead of realizing that there's tools and frameworks that we can build into the organization that will allow for easier upgrades and configuration for stepping into supporting those tools 
and still give us the ability to tailor those solutions to our competitive advantage where you don't need a proprietary solution to give that to you. And so it's it's just the updated version of that old mindset. And it's just, it, sometimes it drives me a little bonkers when I start hearing those conversations. Yeah, yeah it's funny you mentioned that, Emma, because um, I, I forgot which panel it was, but somebody brought up this you know, build versus buy, which we've been hearing about from a long time. And I, I made a note to myself, is anyone actually building anymore? Like, I feel like this debate's been settled. Like you should always buy where it makes, I mean, it almost always makes sense to buy, right? And then um, integrate. And so we're seeing companies, right? Um, moving to the cloud, we see them leveraging APIs to kind of communicate, bring in different partners, this whole idea of platforms and ecosystems. And um, I've done some recent uh, training courses for insurers to kind of talk through some of these concepts. But I was like sitting there like, wow, in 2022, like I, I know 10 years ago, this was a a robust debate that I was a, a part of, um, you know, at, at, at USA at the time, kind of talking about different systems or whatnot. But I was like, in 2022, it feels obvious that because, and there's lots of reasons I won't get into all of them. But um, to your point, it's like, hey, what percent of the marketplace do you have, right? Um, even a large insurer like USA might be 5% of the personal lines market. Well, that's 95% of the market that they don't have. And so it just doesn't make sense in many cases to build their own system because they can only at max capture 5% of the market when a, a third party firm could come in, right? Um, develop for a much greater share of the market. They're going to see a lot more data. They're going to do a better job training their AI. They're going to be able to more quickly incorporate new features, et cetera. Like, you know, they can build a whole business around it. So I, I think in so many different aspects, um, like it, instead of build versus buy in, in like kind of, a, you know, oh, if we can't build it, then we should buy. To me, it's the opposite. It's like, you know, only look to build if you can't buy it for whatever reason. If you can't buy it, <laughs> try to figure out like, why is that? And could somebody, you know, could we co-develop or something like that with, uh, with another firm? I want to drop one other statistic that I heard somebody. So one of the panels, um, and you may have actually even mentioned it when you were sitting up on stage. One of the um, panels had somebody from AWS on, and he shared that only 4% of insurance processes are being hosted in the cloud. And um, going back to what you said, like my initial reaction would be like, yeah, I know we're like a little slower to adopt, but like 4% is so much lower than I would have expected it would be at surface. And so I think that kind of goes to show maybe we're not quite as far as we were hoping. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I, I, I had gone to a panel in the morning prior to, to the panel that I was uh, speaking on, which was on the future of PNC insurance. And so I went to kind of the future of technology panel in the morning. And, and you're right, that was the one that kind of stuck out to where I, so, so uh, you know, full credit to Chad from AWS for that. But uh, yeah, it, it was definitely striking. And one of the the notes that uh, I took and, and had a lot of uh, takeaways, I think, from the two days. So I'm curious, Emma, what what were some of the other um, takeaways or aha moments that you had from the uh, Global Insurance Symposium? So I think I was pleasantly surprised with how much of the focus I heard pointed back to an innovative culture being the absolute first step that's needed for transformation. 
And, um, you know, we've talked a, a decent amount about what, what Navient does. And I, I always tell people like I sell software, but like, I actually don't think that that's the most important part of managing transformation effectively. And anybody who like looks at my LinkedIn or we can get to this, but like my TikTok or anything else where I'm creating content for people to consume, my biggest message that I want to slap people across the face with is that transformation is about people. Now, whether that's your customers or your employees and the culture that you're using to support them or the customer experience that you're providing, it all comes down to your people being enabled by technology or your process being enabled by technology. And so the idea that, um, we're actively having the conversation of what it means to build an innovative culture within a company. And um, during the, the keynote, the president of AM Trust was talking about how they've started to put that into their rating system and uh, an innovative culture and it, just innovation in general. But the first piece was leadership and culture associated with innovation is, is a major part of how they're rating that. And so that, that made me very happy to hear that and hear that focus because sometimes when we're at these other industry events, there's so much excitement around the really cool, like shiny new technology that we have available, where maybe we're not having the actual real conversation of, are we ready to bring that technology into the company that we have right now? Um, so that, that was something that made me um, pretty excited to hear over in a, a, num in a number of the presentations. Um, and then I would say the other part is, and now I'm going to like sound a little contradictory, but there's a lot of really cool stuff that's happening in this industry and um, a lot of really cool ideas coming out of the, whether it's the Global Insurance um, Accelerator Program, they, um, the GIS team brought some folks over from Israel to come and do kind of a fast pitch competition. There were some people from InsureTech New York there. I think AmFam's Accelerator. I may have missed them because I came a little bit late during the initial pitch. But there, there were, you know, so many different ideas being offered. And what was also kind of fun about it is those ideas spread across all the different lines and even into kind of like half ancillary insurance and another type of service offering. Um, so there was employee benefits, there was, you know, life focus stuff, telematic, I mean, everything you can name of. And it was really fun to be able to see those founders share that as well. Yeah, no, it was, a, it was a great mix of folks. Um, and I know each event tends to have a little bit, um, you know, different mix. Sometimes it's a little bit more from the, the the incumbent side. Sometimes it's more from the startup side. Sometimes it's the you know VC folks. Sometimes it's the the regulators. But um, one of the great things at GIS was I feel like it really had a, a pretty robust uh, representation from all the different groups. And um, you're right. I think just seeing a the technology. I know we heard from somebody from Meta talking about the the metaverse, and you and I had a, a conversation about you know okay, we'll believe it a little bit when we see it, right? But it is interesting to kind of think about. And um, I heard a ton of in terms of value added services, right? Particularly from some of those founders that are more seasoned insurtech founders that were part of the, the the panel there about, hey, I'm not just selling insurance, right, but actively making lives better, having a much more uh, immersive relationship with customers than I think is traditional rather than, um, uh, I think somebody said something in terms of like, uh, 
I'm going to screw this up, but you kind of react and remunerate. It's now going to um, protect and partner or something like that. So again, I'm, I know I'm, I'm messing up that quote, but yeah, it was absolutely kind of a, a mindset shift. You know, one thing that um, you and I uh, were sitting together kind of at the end um, for the last couple of panels. And so we shot, saw the InsureTech founder panel and that was followed by um, several of the uh, insurance commissioners um, talking about the NAIC and, uh, you mentioned to me that it was kind of a striking contrast from a lot of these founders that are probably pitched hundreds of times and really knew their spiel versus some of these uh, regulators that, that were up there. And the thing they were most excited about was starting a new permanent committee. Um, so I just, yeah, I wanted to, to kind of, you know, get your thoughts on any of those kind of moments. There was a CEO panel earlier in the morning, et cetera. There was kind of a uh, 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 anyway, there was some contrast. And, and so anything that stood out to you just in terms of like a, a disconnect or something that was a bit striking uh, among all the different groups? Well, I so I unfortunately missed the CEO panel because I was hosting a, a live event from my hotel room. So I, I had to do that and then quick come over for the other sessions. Um, so I wasn't there for that conversation. But just as you were saying, the back-to-back InsurTech panel and then the commissioner's panel was an interesting piece to watch. And I think the biggest thing for me that came out of the commissioner panel is that they were talking about, you know, from a regulation standpoint, they're not actively seeking to stand in way of what the consumer wants. And that sometimes they're not even necessarily aware that something needs to change because it's a statute that's been there for such a long time that like, again, they, they are not the ones that are pushing the envelope on innovation. And so they need the collaboration of understanding if and when something needs to change. And um, the idea that like they have yet to, to run across something that they weren't able to adapt to when they were working collaboratively with the industry to figure out the solution to the problem. And I think sometimes, and you know, everybody kind of opts back to like, oh, government moves slow and they're kind of the enemy when it comes to regulation and they get in the way of innovation. And that's not what they're there for. They're there to protect people just the same way that insurance companies are there to protect people and that they want want to be collaborative and they want to help support where the industry is at today. Um, and so the, the CEO of Beam was also talking about, you know, having to um, get into a car and drive for 12 hours for a 15 minute meeting with the FDA to get their connected toothbrush approved because it was just something that like they didn't, they couldn't wrap their mind around why someone would want to connect a toothbrush to the internet. They didn't say no because it's clearly a part of their business model today, but they weren't the ones coming up with the idea. So they didn't realize that there was something in their regulations that needed to change to allow for that innovation. And so that was one kind of parallel that I saw between the two. It's like, oh yeah, like if someone came to me and said like, oh, we can't get this toothbrush approved because it's connected to the internet. I'd be like, do they even know that you want to do that? <laughs> like, and so that that was, you know, and and that's the difference between somebody whose mind is an entrepreneur's mind, constantly coming up with ideas and pushing the envelope. That's what their role in society is. And then you have to collaborate with people that fill other roles in, in our society and the way that we work. So it was kind of fun to see that back to back side by side of the of the two panels. Yeah, and sure. I forgot which state, but one of them said during the pandemic, pandemic and they just like you know many other companies right had to have their workforce work from home and kind of pivot quickly and they, they were talking about their efforts to to go paperless and <laughs> we were kind of saying that like hey a lot of insurance companies they've 
had a lot of paper in the past, but many of them have gone paperless kind of 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> it's good to hear the regulators finally in 2021, 2022, looking to uh, go paperless. So, hey, maybe you'll get some some new customers out of that from uh, the insurance regulator side. Uh, so there you mentioned- Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, you talked about um, LinkedIn Live having a show and you have uh, kind of a regular mm-hmm. broadcast called the third Thursdays that's out there. So we'd love to talk to have you a kind of share, you know, what is that? Uh, I know you have a co-host and you kind of have different guests on and then just uh, maybe more broadly, after talking about Third Thursdays, is just you know content creation in, in general. You mentioned TikTok, and uh, you are somebody that's really kind of out there and, and getting fairly well known. And so I think you have some great insights and tips for anyone that's maybe looking to uh, break through. In fact, I was just talking with the founder right before we jumped on the podcast, and uh, he's early stage, and he was asking me about ways, you know, how uh, strategies to get in front of. Uh, um, you know, insurance companies they'd like to partner with. So um, hopefully he's listening to this uh, podcast and we'll get some of your ideas. Yeah, so I do have a number of kind of, I would say, channels of how I'm creating content. Um, and it all started at the beginning of the pandemic. I was, I joke, a sad salesperson who was home alone, just like everybody else, trying to figure out how am I going to get back in front of people? And Um, Going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, I've had a very consultative education-based sales style from the very beginning, and you can't do that unless you're in front of people, and especially in those early stages of COVID when we didn't know how long things were going to last and we hadn't really gotten back to that business as usual. I had a lot of meetings canceled or put on hold while people were trying to figure out how they were going to to make do. So I had some extra time on my hands and (laughs) my husband's a sales and marketing consultant and he, um, he encouraged me to, to start experimenting with video because he knows obviously I'm comfortable speaking and that's what I've always done. And, um, So at first it was just kind of an experiment of is anybody even going to watch? And so I started a weekly interview series, which I now, I just crossed the threshold of two years. Um, So there's, you know, if you want to binge watch, there's over a hundred episodes out on YouTube. Um, And it's called the Digital Transformation Talks. And so naturally, because I work so much in the insurance industry, there is a fair amount of those episodes that are targeted at insurance. And then some that are just targeted at wide-facing trends in in the, the movement of transformation, because that's not individual to insurance. Um, So for that series, a lot of times I'm interviewing um, CEOs of software companies or consultants that are focused in different areas like change management, as well as executives that are leading change within their organization and doing things like massive system overhaul or, um, and those are really short and sweet. They're about 15 minutes-ish max, and um, we cover a couple of questions, and there's a central theme to it, and it's it's meant for people to be able to learn um, about this industry and kind of build a, what I would call like digital literacy um, ac- across these platforms and also other ideas that are kind of key to being able to transform. Um, and then I got connected with my co-host of the third Thursday. He's actually in 
um, in Ireland and we've never had the opportunity to meet in life, in real life, in person. Um, so we got connected while we were doing one of those interviews. And I think he may have reached out to me for a quote on something he was working on. I asked him to be on the show. We clicked really well. And once I got LinkedIn live access, I reached out to him and I was like, hey, I want to start this panel. Um, I want to, I, I want to try and do this. Like, and he was like, great. How will we call it the third Thursday? And we do it every third Thursday of the month. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, there it is. It has been born. Um, and then like at that point we were on like, I honestly think we were on like the Monday of the week of the third Thursday. And we were like, quick, who can we bring on to start this and see if this is something we want to continue. And so, um, Similar to the digital transformation talks, it's not necessarily just focused on insurance. We have different topics that we'll talk about. Again, some are broad facing for all different kinds of industries. And then um, just the one that I, it only felt right while I was at GIS to host an insurance event while I was doing it. Um, so just yesterday I had um, Brian and Nick join us for a conversation on kind of the, the future of data-driven decisions and underwriting and how, um, how new technology is potentially going to impact the way that we we look at and specifically kind of talking through PNC and auto claims and stuff like that in that episode specifically. Um, but they're 30 minute conversations and my co-host likes to call it no vendor BS. So I'm not talking about Navient where when we bring on leaders that are talking that work for other software companies, we're not allowing them to sell we're talking about large concepts that are going to impact the way that you transform your organization and really looking to make it an educational resource that helps people. Um, it's, you know, it's supported by Navient, but it's not a Navient broadcast. It's not for, you know, our seven where Karen works. It's really for us to have conversations that we think are going to help people. Um, and then the the last side of it is probably the, the, the TikTok is my probably more unusual side of content creation. Um, and I was having a conversation with somebody else in the space and he said something and I was like, oh, that'd make a good TikTok. And he was like, okay, so go make it. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know about that. Like I'm over the age of 30. Should I be doing that? And um, after that conversation, it like kept coming back to me and I couldn't get it out of my brain. And I was like, okay, Again, I just need to do it. I need to try it and see what happens. And so I made this TikTok and I put it out there and like in the post was like, do we hate this content or should we make it a thing? And um, kind of, you know, and I'm sure all the people that hated it stayed quiet. So I'm sure that there are plenty of those because it's the internet. Um, but I, I got a good response from it and people were like, it's actually a lot of fun to see something that's different than what we see all the time. And so um, now I've started what I call TikTok Friday and they go on to LinkedIn, but I also have a TikTok channel where I just talk through um, different ideas or again, there's plenty of trends that I latch on to because those are kind of fun and it makes again, our content a little unusual and different. Um, but then I've, I've segued into using it also as like a way for you can do, you know, a couple minute videos where you're just sharing information in a different way. And um, I, I would say over the pandemic, good, bad, or indifferent, all of our attention spans have shrunk. And something needs to be really compelling to get people to interact with it. And what I've found is doing these TikToks 
even though I'm embarrassing myself on the internet, it gets people's attention and it gets them to pay attention to what I want to, to, to share. And then what I can do is use that post after they're engaged with that 30 second, 15 second video to share additional resources that they can check out from the YouTube channel or the third Thursday or articles that I've read that it, that impacted the thought process behind that 30 second video. So that if it's something they want to learn more about, then they've got this like link LinkedIn post that's full of resources for them to go into and dive into, but they don't have to watch a 15 minute interview to understand if it's something that they're interested in. And so, um, and then now I've slowly but surely started to pull my team into the TikTok game and Navient's got one now. And we use that for like recruiting and culture stuff. And it's actually a lot of fun now that we're all remote and we have people all over the place, it's a lot of fun to be able to like make these collaborative TikToks with coworkers that you see twice a year now because you're not seeing everybody all the time. And so it's like a nice mechanism to reach out or highlight what our employees are doing outside of work. Um, you know, we're, we're Navient, the consulting company, not Navient, the student <laughs> loan company. And so we poke fun at that kind of thing. You know, it's just, it's a nice way for us to show what our company I love it, culture right? is. Kind of the, a human side. Um, so you're not just, you know, Emma Roloff, the director of enterprise solutions at Navient, right? But you're Emma Roloff, Navient uh, personality, right? <laughs> and, and content creator and just putting yourself out there. So good, good on you. <laughs> And um, I was going to say on uh, April Fool's, we had um, one of our employees. So I, I'm in the office and I come in pretty frequently and there's a core group of us that come in and then the rest of the office is set up as hoteling space. And so for those of us that have permanent offices, we've got our little name tags so that, you know, people know that it's a, a permanent office. And she replaced all of them um, and with like joke titles for all of us. And um Mine is that American TikTok girl because um, Ed Halsey, who's another insurance name, I've collaborated with him a couple of times and everybody in my office calls him that British insurance guy. Um, and then on the flip side, he told me his coworkers call me that American TikTok girl. So we've each got our, <laughs> our little nicknames. And so that now is now forever living on my door as my designation within the it. office. I love it. Yeah. Um, actually, Nick Lamparello and I were on, I think, the very first episode of of one of Ed's productions called Grinding My Gears and there's like flames behind us. So yeah, if there's like an embarrassing internet moment for me, that's that's probably it. Uh, but kudos to Ed. He's a, he's a great guy. So um, anyway, well, uh, Emma, just, you know, as folks uh, want to follow you and see some of your content, what's the best way they can do that? I would say LinkedIn is a great starting point. Um, I post very consistently there. So find me there and then you will naturally, if you're interested, find all the trendles on the internet to the YouTube channel after I post an interview on a weekly basis or my TikTok because that's again going to show up every Friday. Um, and so all digital transformation, insurance transformation focused content. And um, I would love to have everybody come and join in the comments and contribute and share their experiences as well. Yeah, that's awesome. So thank you so much, Emma, for being uh, with us here on the Intro Tech Geek podcast. Very quickly, I only got one news item this week. I was really struggling to find stuff. Um, 
This is from the Insurance Journal, and it's uh, actually um, the source is CB Insights that said that, uh, even though I guess ironically we were talking about InsurTech, that InsurTech funding levels have come crashing down in Q1 2022. Um, so they've actually plummeted 58% in the first quarter of 2022 compared to fourth quarter of 2021. Um, so the t- total funding amount was $2.2 billion across 143 deals compared to $5.3 billion on the same number of deals, 143 for fourth quarter of 2021. Um, it actually has only fallen 15% if you do Q1 to Q1, uh, but after Q1 2021, which again, was kind of in the middle of the throes of the pandemic, right? Uh, funding really rose after that. So uh, this is actually from a larger report that's 206 pages from CB Insights called the State of FinTech Q1 2022. Um, so definitely something to uh, check out. And uh, it said it was actually the largest percentage drop in quarterly funding for FinTech since 2018. And InsurTech was the largest percentage drop in the sector. So anyway, kind of interesting. I know... Um, you know, there, there's a, a lot of folks that have been struggling a little bit. Uh, we've talked on this podcast about the, the sheer price of lemonade and others that have really been kind of struggling lately. So it's been a bit of a rough go for it, but uh, we managed to see some battered survivors this week at GIS. And, and, and talking with them, I'm actually excited about some of their prospects moving forward. So I, I know there's always this hype cycle, and now it feels like we're in a bit of a a trough here as it relates to InsurTech, but I, I have a feeling that it will pick back up again. So Emma, I just, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, uh, this news item. I mean, obviously it's like, from what you shared, there's, there's been a, a bit of a more severe dip within the InsurTech space in general, but I would say growth funds, if you're looking at a macro level, like all of them are kind of taking a hit right now, just with current economic climate. And there's so much uncertainty going on that investing in something that doesn't feel like a sure bet feels a little uneasy right now. And so I would hope for many, many reasons that all of those kind of macro trends that we're seeing that are making people feel uneasy come to an end shortly and we can kind of start to to pick back up to, to what, what, what we would all like to see from the standpoint of investing in the future and excitement kind of going towards those goals. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of talk this week actually about the impact of inflation, a lot of costs, uh, inventories, right? Repair costs for auto parts uh, from building materials, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just a challenging time in general in the insurance industry, whether you're a startup or an existing uh, incumbent. So, but Emma, it was uh, fantastic to have you on. I'm so glad we had a chance to do this. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I'd like to thank our guest, Emma Roloff from Navient for joining us today. And we'll see you next time on the InsureTech Geek Podcast. This has been the InsureTech Geek Podcast, uh, powered by JB Knowledge. That's jbknowledge.com. It's all about transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com with co-host Rob Galbraith. That's endofinsurance.com. Big thanks to Jim Greenlee, our podcast producer, Kara Dalton-Aro, our creative producer. And thank you for joining us today. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time.